The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast, episode number 13. It's lucky 13, everybody. Lucky, lucky us. Uh, I'm Ben Rock. And I'm Ilya Friedman. Hey, and Ilya, we have a new sponsor today, don't we? We do. We are very fortunate to have Airy. Classy. Classy Airy, 100-year-old company, as new sponsor of the podcast. They're basically the gold standard in everything they do. Yes, absolutely. Academy Award-winning movies and like all, I mean, their cameras, their lenses, their accessories are the stuff of legend. They are the systems that which filmmakers use to make their movies. I mean, there's there's very few people in that same company, in the same, like, I would say strata as as Airy. They're, they're really impressive. Little point of trivia, I learned in film school, the first camera that I had, uh, I didn't have personally, but the first camera I learned anything on uh, was the then brand new Airy SR2. Wow. With coaxial magazines. Oh, yeah. I loaded a lot of those magazines back in the 90s on music videos in San Francisco. Well, and then later the SR3, which I always thought was pretty sexy. Oh, yeah. But they've come a long way. They certainly have. And the Alexa and the Alexa Mini and all of the different uh, camera technology that they have right now really does sort of... uh, set the gold standard i mean certainly if you look at the number of people who are using their their gear it's it's incredible so their slogan should be like literally like airy we shouldn't have to tell you anything more about ourselves because you know who we are already you know they have a really good website but uh they kind of don't they really don't have to tell very much and in fact there's sort of amongst us in the industry who deal with the gear and the technical side for a living you know that something is going to work and be very solid when it has the airy name on it and some products come out and it almost doesn't matter what they charge for it it's an airy so people buy it people love it absolutely so we're recording this everybody i want you to know how hardcore we are uh it's about it's a little bit after midnight and it's the day before Ilya goes off to NAB. It's it's 20 to 1 a.m. on the day that Ilya goes to the National Association of Broadcasters Convention. Yeah, if, if any of you watched the video that I posted last year, which was basically all about me hating NAB, um, you know, I, I still feel that way. I don't I don't care for this uh, this convention, <laughs> but it is it is necessary. It's like. You know, it is necessary. You, you, I you love NAB. I just don't like Las Vegas personally. And I've, and I've learned the secret if you're based in Los Angeles, and that's if you wait a month, you can go to CineGear and see everything that you would have seen at NAB. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much true. Yeah, six weeks later, you can go yeah. to CineGear. And there's actually like a mini CineGear now too, which is called the JL Fisher event. It takes place with only about 20 vendors, but Hot Rod Cameras will be there. Oh, that's and, cool. And uh, yeah, that happens this year, I think on May 20th, which is Saturday. And that event is free and it is a barbecue and they supply like beer. It's like an ice cream. It is like, they do like a, a whole a whole to-do. So they have barbecue flavored ice cream? I stumped you. I stumped Ilya. That's perfect. Okay. So moving on. Uh, sometimes, sometimes at this point we'll do uh, NAB predictions, but weirdly, I think a lot of companies have already said what they're going to be revealing at NAB. And in fact, Adobe has already released the new version of the creative cloud. Like I can download it now. 
Wow. I guess that means I can download it too. We use Adobe to edit this show. Adobe who should sponsor us. They they really should. <laughs> anyway, do you want to do any of the predictions? I think it's all kind of out there right now. Anyone with a with a internet connection can basically find out what's happening at, at NAB. I mean, there's a lot of new lenses. There's a bunch of new LED lights. To me, NAB, and I know we always talk about this, it's like there's always like a theme every year. Like I remember one year it was 3D, mm. you know, and that died a thousand deaths. Like what's what's going to be the big theme? Virtual reality? Like what's the theme? Yeah, definitely more VR. And now you're hearing VR thrown into the same sentence as VR, AR, and mixed reality. So virtual mm. reality, augmented reality, and now mixed reality. Which, yes, there is a definition for mixed reality, but I've now heard two or three different people give me different ones. But the the concept is is that someone who is not in virtual reality can see someone else experiencing virtual reality. I know. Strange. Mm, freaky. So mixed reality, might that might be a fun term for us to explore yeah. in the future. <laughs> Here's something to talk about. We, we've talked a little bit about virtual reality. I did an episode of, of 20 Seconds to Live, which is still not released, which we shot in VR. Mm. You're going to release it on Vimeo? They now have a 360 viewing mode. We will probably release it on Vimeo. The thing is that we've partnered with a company called Sika TV to release our episodes. Mm. And so I don't know if Sika has a VR viewer yet. To me, this is what I miss when, like this year, I am unable to go to NAB. And it's to kind of figure out what, it's not really what the zeitgeist is, because the zeitgeist emerges on its own. It's to figure out what the companies want the zeitgeist to be, which is more of what you're going to actually encounter at NAB than what the actual zeitgeist truly is itself. Yeah, I think that HDR, again, will be another big topic of discussion, and I think that will start to permeate the zeitgeist, because I'm already seeing the consumer sets that now say HDR-ready. Oh, it's HDR-ready. And that's high dynamic range? High dynamic range, exactly. And it's interesting because the camera manufacturers, thankfully, have not really jumped on that bandwagon, but the truth of the matter is if you've got a camera that's doing... 13 stops at dynamic range you have an hdr camera that Mm. you've you've already got it and it depends on how it's going to be posted and depending whether or not they're sending the uh the encoding correctly to your television set through your streaming service or your cable company or your blu-ray player but whatever it is i don't want to watch things in high dynamic range um is that what people are wanting to do like i want to look at it in the exact dynamic range that the filmmakers intended which is usually like Color correction is often about compressing the dynamic range. Yeah, so now that there's HDR, there's also SDR, which stands for standard dynamic range. So it's not just you know dynamic range and high dynamic range; it's standard dynamic. So range, does this so. mean that like we're going to be watching television shows and everything's just going to be super flat looking? No, high dynamic range does not mean flat. High dynamic range means uh, you're going to have a higher spread in in nits and brightness between your brightest white and your darkest black. I mm-hmm. mean, your contrast just now has gone in, in much, much higher because this they're basically saying this area of the screen, you can now be brighter. This is, can be brighter. There's something to be said that, uh, that color could be, uh, could be, could see a benefit from this as well. But really what we're talking about is brightness levels and how bright and saturated or, and bright these, different shades and regions of the screen is uh it's it's interesting because it was such strict quality control for theaters for for a very very long time and that's gonna change that people are now gonna have they're not they're now gonna make it so certain areas of the screen pop certain areas of the screen Hmm. are brighter and 
I don't know if filmmakers really want that, but they're convinced that consumers do. And I think that there's a lot of confusion and most consumers don't even know what the hell this is. Well, I'm going to, in honor of my birthday, I'm going to try not to be a crotchety old man about it and try and keep an open mind and see it when it comes down the pike. Uh, that you can do. I, I have a feeling that it's probably in Best Buy now, even though it's probably not set up and being displayed properly. Best Buy. I only go to Circuit City. I know it's been closed for 10 <laughs> years. I just stand outside and scream at the walls. <laughs> there, There is that former Circuit City just down the road from you, too. It is. Yeah. 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 Now a thrift store. <laughs> Well, cool. Uh, so uh, you'll enjoy NAB. I'll enjoy my birthday, then my wife's birthday, then my anniversary, which is why I really shouldn't be going to NAB this year. All right. So Ben, who's on the show today? Uh, on the show today is Roman Vasyanov, who is uh, uh, an amazing cinematographer. And as we said in the last episode, uh, um, uh, unfortunately very young. And so, uh, <laughs> we're recording this. It's actually my birthday now. And so I'm feeling kind of old right now. And uh, when I met him, I'm like young son of a bitch. And then it's like, then when we got talking to him, as you'll hear in, in the uh, interview, uh, that guy has some serious training from a Russian film school that, uh, is kind of many leaps and bounds beyond anything you'll find in America. And uh, his level of experience is amazing, and I think his insight into uh, into the work that he does is inspirational. Years don't matter compared to the miles. I think sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's a, yeah, it's and, the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hour thing, and I, and he went to a school where I feel like they put ten thousand hours on all of their students, and then you know I'll, I'll, I, I'm not going to ruin his story. It's fascinating. I'm not going to go into any more detail until until he does it himself. So, Ilya, also, uh, we have a, a new piece of news. We have a new member of the Cinematography Podcast family, correct? I am so happy and thrilled to report this, but we have an editor. We have an editor. Uh, you, you know, as happy as you are to report it, I'm even happier because I've edited all, oh my God, 12 episodes of this up until now. <laughs> and it's been like 12 episodes in hell. But now we have a fella. Yeah, we do. Named Mike Wilbanks. And he's in Texas. He's in Texas, and he's been editing this stuff, and he's uh, a fan of the podcast, and a super nice guy. and Kicking butt already. Yeah. yeah. No, he uh, edited the Roman Vasyanov interview, and I was a little afraid to let it out of my, my grubby hands like the precious, like, oh, no, no, somebody else is editing, and they're going to screw it all up. And then I listened to his edit, and I was like, ah, oh, that's fucking brilliant, and I didn't have to do any of it. And so we're hoping... Crossing our fingers that having Mike Wilbanks in the cinematography podcast family will enable us to at least turn these episodes out a little bit faster than we have at the glacial glaciers move faster than we release episodes. All right. So uh, without further ado, Roman Vasyanov. The cinematography podcast interview. I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California with Roman Vasyanov. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for coming out. Before we even start, could you tell me where people can find you? Do you have Instagram, Twitter, your own website, Any where, where people can find your information? Well, I, I do have a website, which is uh, romanvasianov.com, or you can follow me on Instagram, romanvasianov.dop. That's where I usually put my photos, my mm-hmm. pictures I took with my still camera. Like fun pictures or artistic? or. Kind of kind of just fun when I somewhere like in some faraway land doing some commercials <laughs> and I'm wandering around and take photos or you know something from projects I've done some still photos you know because for me photography I think is the only like kind of form I, I, I constantly enjoying and um, I think it's kind of like a stress-free 
Yeah, because I think <laughs> movie business <laughs> cinema it's just also like process of taking photos in a way, but like making right visuals, but it's way much more stressful than <laughs> than photography. Yeah, when you're taking a picture, there isn't usually an AD asking you how long it was going to take you to no. to hit the shutter. Exactly, it's just kind of <laughs> enjoyable moment. <laughs> So let's start with your origin story, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, superhero movie joke. Let's start with how you got started. When did you start seeing that cinematography or camera work was a thing you wanted to pursue? Well, when I was growing up, my dad was a photographer and he worked for a couple like Soviet magazines. And basically I was around him and he was constantly taking photos. And um, when I was, I think, 15 years old, accidentally in the, in the same like apartment building when I was living with my dad, his, his friend was... Uh, one like Soviet cinematographer they basically borrow lenses from each other and that's how I found out that the whole like cinematography mm-hmm. exists in a way and on a certain point I was like thinking what I want to do and um, basically that neighbor told me oh you should try it maybe you should try to pick your dad's camera and try to go around take photos and maybe you know maybe he can go and become a cinematographer and I was like hmm that sounds interesting movies you know I always love movies and I watched a lot of movies when I was a kid and uh you know that's what I did basically I took what, a what kind of stuff are they I don't understand or know what, what's going on in the Soviet Union in <laughs> like what year are we talking about like in the well 80s? you know like I was born in 1980 so the Soviet Union kind of felt apart in 1991 so I was 11 years old and um you know when it was Soviet Union it was only like Soviet movies and um you know like you watch a lot of like World War Two movies uh, when you kid. You watch a lot of all kinds of like dramas or. So did American movies or European you know, movies no, make it there at all? Uh, or sometimes like Italian movies, like uh-huh. Bernardo Bertolucci. Actually, Conformist was. Uh, I have not seen it unfortunately, but I read later that because he was a pro-communist Italian kind of artist, he had a chance to show <laughs> his movie in Soviet Union, but actually. They they took the movie and they doubled it in Russian and they didn't tell him that basically they cut out the sex scene like a, the famous mm-hmm. like uh, erotic scene in the beginning of the movie uh-huh. because it was like forbidden to show and uh, he arrived in the Moscow Film Festival and saw his movie completely like doubled and recut it so <laughs> so he was very angry about it and actually I saw that movie later on in my film school because they still got that copy of the Conformist oh no. Yeah, and actually, the most funny thing about it that they have two copies. One copy was in color, which it was actually the way it was shot. It also was in black and white, because for some reason that was like cheaper to yeah. like make more copies out. <laughs> so basically, poor Bernard Belushi saw probably the movie he never really shot. <laughs> <laughs> Here's but, your movie, unlike anything that you had ever approved done, of. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it was a lot of movies, and then after the like metal curtain fell, and uh, it was a, a lot of like content coming from. A lot of movies and coming from west and um, you know that's basically where i start watching like scarcity movies and you know all the great american classic movies from 70s and you know i really really sort of loved uh, because i think um, russian cinema has like uh, i mean soviet cinema has an amazing history like with yeah they Ezen- kind of invented cinema <laughs> yeah i mean like with Eisenstein movies yeah. or with uh, you know tarkovsky movies or with bandarchuk movies like war and peace i think when you teenager like when you're 15 16 it's really hard to sort of uh, yeah. really understand them it's actually sort of uh, i feel the whole soviet education system was like over educating kids like because in the school program when you're 14 you gotta like read war and peace or like anna karenina and oh man reality is like <laughs> i actually reread those books when i was like 31 and i kind of got them you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. It's, it's really hard when you 
15 to understand. It's always weird to think that like when you're the literature that's like forced down your throat in school was actually just popular literature of its time, even like Shakespeare. It's like that was the popular. No, it's, like, it's like amazing literature. That's yeah. why it stays over the centuries yeah. and become like a classic literature. It's just sometimes like you, you got to be ready for, you know, your, your mind has to be ready for certain you know, <laughs> books. And I, I don't think my mind was ready in that time to like really enjoy an amazing Soviet you know sort of a movies that's why i kind of was like happy to watch like a lot of american movies like casino and like you know raging bull and because for me it was also entertaining as well that's i think yeah. what's the hollywood movies about it's a great dramas but it's extremely interesting to watch and then later on you watch like mirror tarkovsky which is extremely sort of an impressionistic mm-hmm. cinematic experience but you're only getting it much later in your life uh, what it's all about so by the time that the Soviet Union collapses and you're able to get all these movies, were you already on a path to become a filmmaker yourself? I try to like pass exam. We have this sort of a filmist university in Moscow, and um, it's really hard to get in because uh, it's not you can't you cannot just pay for education. So it's only like 15 uh, students can get in every year, and it's pretty big competitions, like around 50 people for each. Oh wow! Yeah. So and you basically gotta like take photos create your own portfolio you should first you apply with your portfolio then you like pass several exams like when i was passing I was passing something like chemistry and physics because you should like understand how to make developers and like have to understand structure of the film and optics and you know all that yeah. stuff so it was quite you know tricky. even as that stuff is like going out like even as that stuff yeah is just to even to get in oh yeah wow. so that was quite tricky that's why I, I tried twice and i only passed the exam on the second time and lucky enough my master and the teacher of that year was a very famous kind of soviet cinematographer he's a guru in my opinion who shot uh all tarkovsky movies starting oh, wow. from child of ivan until solaris and Andrei Rublev, which I think is a total masterpiece. And um, this is how I get in there. And I think the atmosphere, the film school took about five years. And um, it was very like an army experience in a way because uh, he was, um, you know, Vadim Yusuf, my teacher, he was very about discipline. He didn't never really like just like this kind of creativity and be creative. He was always like about you should like learn how to expose film properly how to develop film and we had our own lab in mm-hmm. in the film school so we were always playing with a developing time and all kinds of stuff and we first two years we never really even met any director so we're supposed to shoot our own sort of a little short films without music and um, sound just against like a room with a gray walls uh, one is a black and white the other in color and just try to play just with light and 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 gels and the light just to learn light and you know it's a very sort of ascetic way i think uh, mm-hmm. to compare what's happening like on the rest of the film schools all around the world and it has um like maybe some minus because you kind of like you kind of a little bit in yourself but at the same time uh, i felt like that's that's an amazing uh sort of a training just for cinematography because I think you becoming stronger filmmaker first of all and then you're very crafted so basically I will start shooting like short films even I shot my first feature film when I was 22 years old oh wow uh, and um, you know I had zero problems with like all the technical aspects of the filmmaking really it was 
And that was after you had already done that program? Uh, after like on my fifth on my fifth year of uh, education. Five years of that. Yeah, yeah. And it was five years of specifically cinematography. It's two not two years just specifically cinematography, and then you start working little by little with the directors from directors department. Yeah. And um But like you weren't in like the film school that I went to, we we're all in one giant program and then you'd have a cinematography no, it's class like or whatever. We even had like a different uh, sort of um levels in our building like like first <laughs> level was like cinematography second level was directors uh-huh. third level was actors and the fourth level was production designs so in the funny thing when you get in the fourth level, you see all these painting pic- pictures everywhere so basically those guys were like painting pictures for like three years oh my god and the reality is like again the bad side of it that you know they maybe a lot of guys never really even made in the industry because they were so concentrated on uh, paintings but some guys who made it, they an amazing production designers. Like one of my friends, he's right now working with a very, I think, contemporary, probably the best director in Russia, Andrei Zvyagintsov, and he does like Leviathan and all the movies together. And he's an amazing production designer who paints and like has own paintings and stuff. It's, it's, it's I think it's, as I said, it's like it's a cool program. It's very different for everything else, but I, I definitely right now, after the years, I see advantage of that as well. Yeah, it sounds like they really drilled you and just yeah, kind they, of exactly. Like, <laughs> it's nice, nice. And if you don't, if you're not drilling, really, they they don't like leave you there. So it's yeah, that's interesting. Though I mean, it's really interesting, you know, just because I feel like what I think film school in America doesn't do very well is kind of get you used to anything that gets thrown at you. But to a degree, it's like you kind of just learn the basics, and then you get to make a bunch of films, and then they pat you on your ass and give you a diploma and goodbye, good luck. Yeah, you know, and like two or three of the students from any given program end up working in the industry. I think. Right. It sounds like, you know, like what you went through, it's by the time you got done with that, it sounds like. Yeah, well, like from my, basically from this 15 guys who've been in my class, like 10 right now are working as a, as a pretty like good cinematographer yeah. and they're busy and work in the industry. Yeah, I think it's because it's um, university support yeah. by government. It's not really a business structure. Like yeah. there's no like really idea of like, okay, let's get as many students in spot. It's like, it's yeah. the other way around, basically. It's like- The anti-full sale. The, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's- that Sorry, was, full sale students who, <laughs> I, uh, many of whom I know very well. I think it's all about talent in the end of the day. And if the person has a talent and a passion and he's hardworking, he can make uh, out of any system. Of course. Yeah. So uh, what was the name of the cinematographer who worked with Tartowski? Is Vadim Yusuf. Vadim Yusuf. Uh, he shot, like I said, uh, Childhood of Ivan and Andrei Rublev and Solaris. Is he still teaching there? No, unfortunately he died like three years ago and uh, he had a huge sort of, um, it's, it's interesting, right? Before he died, he went to Kamrimash uh-huh. and he had like oh, two weeks there was like surrounded by students and uh showing his movies and and it's a kind of shame because in my opinion he definitely deserved like an oscar or academy award nomination for some of his work but because of the regime and the metal curtain between our countries he never even had a chance to be nominated for anything really. did he shoot any movies in europe or? no because like by the time the sort of a soviet union collapse he was already like 70 something so, uh. so you know it's it's hard and i think after the soviet system of filmmaking was really hard sort of a transition to like modern way how people right now make movies yeah, uh, yeah. and it's completely to different discipline and i think that's why myself and my 
friends who graduated from that school in that period of time, uh, you know, had opportunity to start shoot very early just because it was like a generation change in mm. a way of people who used to do things in the old way and people who's uh, ready to do things in a new way, more like a producer's movie, you know, like cinema. So uh, do you think that the stuff you learned in that program, like still to this day, uh, influences like how you go about approaching your work? Uh, was Like if you could summarize the discipline that they taught you, how would you describe well, it? Well, definitely. I mean, it was very like deep knowledge into optics and structure of lenses. We were like building our own like lenses together with our teachers and uh, oh, wow. from glass and creating like very simple lenses, like, you know, optars and like very, you know, when they just the one lens and uh, mm-hmm. one lens lens uh, and um, one glass lens and definitely in in the film like we had the lab and we you know I, I was using densitometer to put like all the curves and I remember when I was doing my first movie in in Los Angeles uh, and the post production was in the film with Beverly and we talk about film I feel like she's very like wow <laughs> because I think she didn't really expect for such a young man to be so knowledgeable about what she does with like all the developing process and stuff yeah, right yeah. now it's all kind of going away just because the film is going away but in the same time i feel the knowledge of of how really you know it, it all works very helpful because even these days uh you know i just done um show with doug lyman on super 16 and uh, suicide squad show on a 35 mil anamorphic and fury with 35 mil anamorphic so you know i still f- find it very useful um uh, even today like that knowledge i got and and of course uh, we also been teached a lot of uh, history of art a lot of art and uh, we had like drawing classes when we were trying to draw like some storyboards ourselves that is amazing stuff. though i really think that sounds like yeah. like i think more film schools could learn from that well i think the actually uh, the lots film school in poland uh, mm-hmm. i think they kind of like in the trying to be in that sort of a system of education I think it's fantastic for cinematography. I'm not sure if it's great for directors because I think the whole idea of a really like educate directors is a little tricky, you know, like the more I work I'm industry, the more I'm finding that a lot of interesting guys coming from script writing mm-hmm. or acting or, you know, like it's, it's, I think it's, uh, I think directing is really hard to really learn how to direct. You can learn like the basic things, but yeah. it doesn't really make you a good director you know and as opposite to cinematographer because it's in the in in the level it's a craft so if you learn craft very well then and you put in talent on top you can really achieve something yeah but if you you know maybe not so talented but you still got a craft you still can be very good you know so that's i think the huge difference between directing and cinematography in a way you know do you know what how they taught the directors in that program well, directors just been, you know, it's a lot of uh, script writing, sort of uh, with script writers together, like developing and a lot of, they have to also work like more like in a theater. Mm-hmm. So they have, they can take actors from actor department and create basically plays. Like because uh, Bergman and Tarkovsky, they're, they're heavily involved in the theater as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's quite useful. Looking at it right now, I think it's it's an amazing educational process i think it's really like um make you much more deeper person than you are much more smarter person than you are yeah yeah but uh, but i don't think it's a crucial thing for to be a good director because i think it's it's a total different like it's a, just a talent it's a magic in a way you know I mean? it's, <laughs> it's crazy it's like that's why we got so many great 
DPs or editors or writers and so few great directors, you know? Well, yeah, the dire- the directors rely on people like you to make them look good. Yeah, <laughs> you know? but but yes and no, because in the same time, you can only be Chivo or Vadim Yusuf or, mm-hmm. or Roger Dickens if you work with an amazing director, because you can shoot beautifully bad movie and nothing going to change in your life. You can shoot pretty ordinary great movie and your life can change, so... <laughs> that's that's an unfortunate fact about this. That's job. so true. <laughs> that's insane. That's great. So I have a couple of sort of stock questions. I'm going to invert them for you because I feel like what you were just talking about kind of dovetails into what one of the things I always want to ask about, mm-hmm. which is the director DP relationship. Mm-hmm. Answer this however you want. I don't have mm-hmm. any expectation. If you could build a director in a laboratory to work with you perfectly, mm-hmm. what would that director work like? What would that relationship be? Uh, we, you know, the the interesting thing is like I, I'm very open to any kind of a relationship from a director. I can even take like, a huge level of like bad behavior if I feel that behind that there is a talent and there is a passion mm-hmm. and hardworking and and you know it's okay to be a mad person because I don't think <laughs> really like a normal person can do that job so I don't take it as an abuse or something like that. Yeah. I feel like it's fine you know let's move on let's make an amazing movie I can take a lot of it if I, I know the result will be great but if at the end result is not great I usually not even continue work with this person because then it's not worth it what i find for myself personally just like through my life i i have a sort of a great relationship with writers like uh, in russia one of my biggest movie i've done was hipsters it's a musical about uh, you know 1950s in soviet union and um, actually director he's he was a writer originally and i think because what i like when i work with a director uh, i'm okay if if I know, like, you know, when you work with an amazing visual director, like, I don't know, James Cameron, David mm-hmm. Fincher, you should just kind of shut up, take the light meter and <laughs> do what they say because <laughs> reality is they are geniuses in a way and, and, and actually they're hiring you to be that way because they don't want to waste time of, like, explaining things. But I think there is also around a lot of an amazing, talented people who need a certain help to 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 open up and, and, and make the best movie possible. So for me, that's really what I feel like. I, that's kind of what I love to do. It's work with people who's very strong in certain things, and and they need a more of a collaborator than than mm-hmm. just a guy who does what they say. And I think that's my strongest work coming even out of it. And I think I found actually that in in Europe that's very common. Like whatever you work in Russia or in Europe, that cinematographer is a kind of right hand and. Um, him and director sharing ideas about script or mm-hmm. ideas about some and in america i think because it's a lot of also like a business involved um, a lot of times especially in the beginning i found that directors feel very insecure a cinematographer very part of like you know discussion of the script so you have to kind of build quite for a long time like a shorthand relationship so it doesn't they don't consider it as a, some sort of a way you want to step out and be in director or something like yeah that. yeah you know which i think is a quite you know, insecure and not very smart because the reality is like whoever you work with an amazing uh, person, it can be a deal production designer. And again, from my personal life experience, usually the best ones, they not just care about their jobs. They're filmmakers. They care how to make the final movie yeah. as amazing as possible. So I personally love to work either with very, very talented people who I just listen and, and yeah. you know, do what they ask, or I love also when 
you know, like for example, our relationship with David, or just I just worked with Jason Hall, who is a scriptwriter of American Sniper. I did his first movie for DreamWorks. Oh, nice! And it was an amazing experience because Jason, it's his first movie, but I can see guy has a hell of a talent. He would be probably one of the best contemporary directors. I hope. I mean, at least yeah. I felt like he has that. You know, That's but great. you just need to like just a little help with some craft things, like with some maybe even technical things if you want to say yeah that. yeah and you know i usually more than happy to do that and take that uh responsibility and i think that's actually my job i sometimes wonder if like i feel like in film schools and in film culture in america i, I don't know how it is in the rest of the world necessarily there's this abusive idea of auteur theory that's actually overbearing on directors where they feel like every idea has to be theirs. Well, I think it comes from because what they look at the top of the game, people yeah. like Cameron, like Fincher, like Spielberg, like Lucas or like Scorsese. And those guys, they're very self, like, you know, yeah. sort of a very, they're happy to make movie. Like I heard from people that work with James Cameron, he actually was happy if there will be no one else around and he can do it yeah, yeah. himself. So yeah, I've always heard that he could fire literally anyone on the yeah, entire crew he, and do their job better. Yeah, because he knows everybody's job better than yeah. people do, and it's and it's amazing. But the reality is, like again, like example which is happening in front of us, uh, everybody who's watching HBO for past like months were watching The Night Off, yeah, which is an amazing TV show shot and directed by Steven Zellian, who's been scriptwriter, an amazing scriptwriter. But before they had a couple feature films which were great, but not as successful and as great as the night off yeah and so it just says that yeah it's hard to make even a good movie sometimes and sometimes circumstances of actually playing a huge part in it and i think my job as a cinematographer trying to protect director and help director to do to be on top of his game yeah. as much as on on it can and i think and then of course concentrate on my own job as well but the more you're concentrating on job as well, you understand was all the shorthand and relationship with director. You can't really do your job because that's the reason why you know Emmanuel Lubetsky won three Oscars with his uh, film school friends. You yeah, know? yeah. Both of them they know each other since years because you cannot have you cannot fight the studio and say hey we're gonna shoot a minute a day in the magic hour <laughs> without directing supporting you. Yeah, you know, for you real. just you just simply cannot do it. You'll be fired next day. So. The more you coming to the point of like who I am and what I want to do, and I have these images and ideas about visuals, the more you needed to be a brother next to you, a director who trusts you, and at the same time that director will benefit as well because you're friends and you, you yeah, you know he you will never let him down. So that's why every director I work like David Ayer and I hope Jason Hole and you know I just did movie with Doug Lyman that was an amazing experience. I feel like it's very close relationship first of all and then i think because of that i think we'll do some fun stuff interesting so the other very stock question i ask but i love the different answers that we get from people is i tend to think that cinematographers either think of a composition and light into that composition mm -hmm. or think of the lighting and find a composition in the lighting they're like starting with lighting or mm -hmm. starting with composition and granted there are plenty of people who are neither or both but what are your thoughts about that? Where uh, do you start? I, I started myself more from lighting and then I've changed to composition mm -hmm. because I think the, sh the great shot can tell much more than the lighting. So it's great when you begin your career and you're learning how to light. It's fantastic to sort of, uh, sometimes you have to frame for lighting. Yeah, like yeah. There's no choice, especially if you use like big sources or, you know, if you kind of, stuck with uh you know tight spaces you have to consider your lighting when you do yeah frame 
but more you you do this work the more you understand that actually the power of the shot of the composition is sometimes much stronger than the lighting lighting idea so right now i i try to concentrate first of all what kind of a shot i want and then I, I try to understand how the best way i can light it and of course it's sometimes it's a compromise either way but i think for me composition right now comes first just because i feel like that's the way to go and 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 the camera language is more importantly than the lighting and if you experience it good enough then then the lighting will come as well so when you're reading a script are you thinking of it as a series of compositions or are you imagining the compositions well, or the I try to like when I read a script I try to understand what it's all about and I think uh, about just the visual language generally first like what what I want to feel from camera what kind of a camera I want to use because I'm a big believer in um, bold choices and I think the whole great cinematography movies when you see they usually have those bold choices either with lighting or with visual language or with some sort of a film processing on the look of the movie mm -hmm. so I try to understand like what I would how I would love to approach this movie from that that point of view first and then scene by scene you kind of start feeling where what scene requires what camera language and lighting language but the lighting way sometimes comes also from a lot of things like do you know if your director is really the person who commit to sort of a some sort of a coverage or your director is guy who comes and change things and you have got to be ready to look like 360 degrees you know and there is nothing wrong with both approaches they're all talented and you know a lot of talented people work in the both like some directors very visual and very dedicated to certain shots and some directors they just show up and you know try to figure it out and do an amazing movies as well so it's it depends on a lot of things but when i read the script i first try to figure out like what's the visuals of this movies and then i continue like kind of bit by bit you know this is something that i want i i always want to hear from people where does the visual language come from when you're reading the script and you're thinking for instance i want to shoot this on long lenses and i want to use this color and i, I think it's a feeling it's a the, the truth is uh you you never feel anything or it's hard to understand how to shoot the movie only if it's a bad script as soon as you <laughs> got a great script you always see the movie because mm. you feel something and when you feel something that's where your idea comes out and uh that's the problem that's why i think personally myself i i'm not a great shooter of movies which don't mean anything you know because mm -hmm. for me it's hard to kind of like put myself on the edge of like emotional excitement and emotional i just show up to do my job you know and again yeah. it's nothing wrong with that because sometimes we all know it happens in our lives just so, you know we gotta work you yeah, know? yeah but i i i, I know that it's not my best work just because i need to feel something so then i i can come up with some crazy ideas and usually it comes from the script that's why i think the more and more movies and content around us these days the more sort of a the, the price and, 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 and the value of a great script is more important because reality is cinematography is an amazing tool, but but it can't really make good movie or bad movie. Yeah. Script is the only thing which can make a great movie. So that's why, you know, great scripts, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a golden thing. So. <laughs> and so few of them. It's so few of them and everybody's hunting them and that's, you know, that's that's how it is. I'm going to use that to segue to your work with uh, David Ayer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, uh, well-known screenwriter started with Training Day, which mm -hmm. you know is uh, like amazing a, script, a touchstone yeah. movie. Like it's one yeah. of my, one of those movies I can't turn off. Yeah. 
So how do you first uh, come in contact? Because your your work with him was your first American yeah, movie, Yeah, Endowatch, right? yeah. Uh, yeah, we just, I, 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 after I've been signed by my uh, agent, Pete Franciosa, and Robert R. Killian in the United Talent Agency, they sent me the script, basically, and the watch said, hey, there is so no money. How did they find you? Well, I shot uh, that musical, as I said, Hipsters, uh -huh. and it's been screened in Toronto Film Festival. Got and it. And it's been noticed there, and my director, with whom I work, uh, basically got a proposal to sign with William Morrison mm -hmm. uh, agency, big agency. And his agent actually really loved my work, and he's like, oh, I know those agents. And, and then also I shot uh, a commercial for Philips, it caused the gift, which won uh, Grand Prix Lion in, in Cannes, uh, commercial Cannes competition, and it's all happened in the same year. Oh, wow. So basically, when my agent got my two DVDs of a movie and a commercial, he, he thought it's like two different people because it was kind of different, very different material. And they basically, they just called me, Pete Franciosa called me like in 2 a.m. and said, hey, so you work, what are you doing? And I, I just immediately felt that it's my chance. and. I was in prep on another movie uh, in Russia in that period, and I just like co-producer said, "Guys, I can't. I gotta basically pack my pack my bags and move on." And that's what I did. And I, you know, it's one of the things you when something like that in your life happens, you just gotta go for it. Otherwise, you don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Was it your goal always to come out to America and, and make a? And I think I reached I reached certain level in Russia where you know I wasn't like the best, but I was maybe like in three, four, like the best DPs mm -hmm. out there. And, you know, there clearly was like three, four good directors. And, you know, one already worked with me, second worked with me permanently, and two others never really had interest to work with me. So I kind of know my, you know, I kind of reached the ceiling in a way, you <laughs> know what I mean? So I felt like I got to move on. I got to do something just to just to develop myself, to be better and better every day. You have to have challenges. And, uh, you know, that's why I moved to United States and, and um shot end of watch and uh, you know in russia i was making you know great money and working non-stop and for me it was definitely a huge downshift you know i rent like a tiny apartment and stuff uh -huh. but but it, it's worth it because i felt that it's a challenge and it's a, it's an, a great opportunity you know so before we even really get into your american work mm -hmm. let's talk about the kind of stuff that you did in russia you did a bunch of features and you also did like over 300 commercials yeah right? commercials a lot of commercials because uh you know i was speaking english and it was a lot of like foreign directors coming to russia and the market was booming and um basically you know, it wasn't really like that many DPs who sp spoke English. I mean, mm -hmm. so uh, that's why I get proposals to work all with all these great like foreign directors. And I shot a lot of commercials so, and uh, some of them won awards, uh, international awards as well. And, uh, you know, I always felt that no matter what, I want to try at least once, try to make a movie abroad and try to make a movie in Europe or, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and you know, as I said, I loved American movies, and I loved uh, you know Hollywood movies, and and you know, I felt like it's always been that nice sort of a combination of art, and also it was always interesting, and you know, audience-driven movies, uh, which I think is. Uh, rare because in russia it's sort of a film festival orientated movies which not yeah. necessarily interesting you know i'm not very interested to just uh it's great to do it like couple projects like that but after that you also understand that there is sort of a plan inside of those movies how to make them work for you know why they get like selected it's like yeah. a whole thing you know so yeah. so on a certain point you just kind of get 
tired of it. And 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 to be honest with you, for me, I don't really care about is the movie is you know for film festival or for it's a big box office blockbuster. For me, it's about is it a good movie or not. And for me, the only really indicator is a good movie or not. Do I want to see it twice or no? Mm-hmm. And if I want to see the twice the movie, it means movie is fantastic. So I don't think I, I have shot movie like that yet. But that's my kind of dream and goal you don't think you've shot a movie that anyone would want to watch twice i i, I myself not I'll, I'll fury probably, or end of watch those are both brilliant <laughs> yeah but i don't think I, I i shot the movie you know it's a good movie but it's not like schindler's list it's not uh-huh. you know flying over cuckoo's nest it's, it's not that schindler's list by the way kind of a bummer just you know i know <laughs> it's a classic but you know it's not a yeah yeah right. but uh, for me i think uh, it's it's uh you know uh, my dream is like just to shoot the movie I mean, to be proud of, it's a little bit like kind of too much to say, but just a movie, I think I feel like is, is something special. Like a movie that really gets to people? Yeah, like, for example, No One Saw, like, but I think Fox Catcher, like two years oh, ago, yeah. it's an, it's an incredible, it. it's a masterpiece. Yeah, and it's no one, the same thing like Will Be Blood, you know, uh-huh. people, PTA didn't want Oscar, nothing. It's like... No, but those movies are well known. I mean, I think that to this day, if you no, say it is, drink but, your milkshake, but, at least in this town, everyone will get the joke. No, of course. But what I'm saying is that's, I'm just saying that yeah. this is the movie. If you're saying like what I would love to shoot yeah. this kind of movie, which not necessarily has to win like all the awards or something, just a movie, which means something. And yeah, because we'll be blood. People were going to watch in film schools, you know, oh, in for 10, sure. 15 years, they're going to, that will be forever. That's the art, which going to live longer than all of us. So, I mean, you know, but on the, on the flip side of that, though, by the way, um, a friend of mine got me into a screening of Mad Max Fury Road last year, and mm-hmm. I was able to meet George Miller. Mm-hmm. And when I was in film school, we watched the Mad Max films, mm-hmm. and we studied how they put together sequences. You know, I think that there's an enormous amount that you can learn from uh, a really brilliantly executed genre film. I I'm totally agree with you. Like, when I was a kid, I remember when I was, like, 13 years old, I watched, like, Terminator 2 probably seven times or something oh in the God. movie theater. It was a completely mind-blowing experience. And I think it's definitely an amazing, oh, like, Black Hawk Down. Like, yeah, there yeah. are certain movies where, oh, like, Munich, you know, like, certain movies which are completely mind-blowing. But I still feel like, you know, you get, like, some Tarkovsky movies or, you know, Scorsese movies or, you know, I think Bennett Miller definitely getting in that leak little by little, but, like, with very powerful movies, I think that's something that's, like, a a top notch, you know what I mean? It's hard to... But, again, I'm not saying something better than the other. I'm just saying for no. myself, I found the genre movies, it's it's a fun to do and it's it's a lot of toys and you have money and time, but I think it's some sort of... It's maybe just personally, it's not some movies I would kind of love to do all my life, you know, no, like The English Patient or Talented Mr. Ripley. That's like an amazing movie. Like so. a movie where you really got a chance to paint. E paint, but also I think it's all about everything. When I think, I think even goal, not even like, oh, look at my work. Goal is like when everything came like together, you know what I yeah, mean? That's, yeah. that's where the real movie really is, yeah, yeah. you know. That's interesting. So you're discovered at the Toronto Film Festival, or mm-hmm. your your producer mm-hmm. signs with William Morris, and mm-hmm. then and then you director, get, yeah, or mm-hmm. oh, your director, mm-hmm. and you meet David Ayer as your first American filmmaking experience. Mm-hmm. End of Watch is a little bit of an unconventional movie. Mm-hmm. What was it like to take on something like that, which which to me is like a little bit less controlled feeling than, yeah, than your I, other work? I mean, I think for me it was like purely like that's the chance you got to take it, and yeah. you know, and you just gotta. Uh, embrace it and not fight against it you know and actually again 
if you ask about inspiration, the script was written that way, that they use those little camera quarters, that yeah. the language has been in the script. So after you read, and it's a great script, 93 pages of like nonstop, you can't yeah, stop yeah. reading that script. It's so like emotionally, your mention is so attached. And he wrote it too, right? He wrote it, yeah. yeah. So then when you got a script like that, it's really about just being smart and pick right people, right tools and, and put it all together, you know? So for me, it wasn't really something difficult. I was just happy that David, you know, had a chance to make movie he wanted. And actually, I'm telling you, I just did like 14 days movie with Doug Lyman. And after 14 like days, 14 days, yeah, one four in the desert where basically I one. How many, I wonder how many days he shot Swingers in. I think also like something like, I think that's what he said. I want to do this movie like Swingers. Sometimes actually that you short on your uh, resources and time, it actually brings uh, out of best out of you. And mm -hmm. sometimes you have this gigantic machine next to you and then it's not necessary help you to make right decisions. So well, it's like trying to turn the Titanic around. Sort you know, of, just yeah, so exactly. So I feel like, you know, it really depends. And, um, and, uh, as a you know it's like a mantra a little bit right now but I, it all comes from script if you got a great script you got you got everything mm -hmm. it's like it's really that's why i don't think i was ever very very good in like shooting music videos because <laughs> i was never for me was never enough like information what's going on because it's like why they're there what yeah. they're doing what's the lightest why are they in this warehouse yeah. why are these chains <laughs> hanging from the ceiling why are the strobe lights strobing like, yeah but then you kind of like okay i just gotta like let it go and don't <laughs> ask too many questions don't piss off anyone and just enjoy <laughs> like enjoy my lights just make it look cool exactly yeah and but but uh, but in the, i think the order the older you're getting the more and more questions like that you ask yeah. yourself because it's just hard not to it's yeah you like, get into you the nuance if you really if you're really taking seriously what you do so when you did End of Watch, mm -hmm. had the majority of the work that you'd done up until then been on film? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, all the movies I shot on 35 mil. Yeah. So what was it like embracing not just shooting on video, but shooting on, were they GoPros or were they we, just... We, had, we used silicone image. It's the camera which uh, oh, Danny, okay. Danny Boyle used before yeah. us. And uh, we worked Are with Are they still around? I have no idea, to be honest with you. It's not like, uh, I think I will use that tool if I need it, but... To be honest with you, I'm not this kind of guy who like can talk about technology and being excited about, look, we found this little camera or like we found, we built this little thing. Uh, for but, me, but for that story, it, it necessitated it. Oh, absolutely. We built a whole new camera for this story. Actually, <laughs> we, we did. We like took apart the whole silicon image. We like built a twice smaller version, put the Velcro, put the Velcro on the vest. Or like for example for fury for like lighting inside of a tank we'll build the whole system of new lights with together with al from light ribbon but it's a fun of this work when you basically have a challenge coming from the script and then you yeah. just figure it out how to to make it work and you know it's usually very exciting but like you never really look at it i, I at least myself i never like kind of like oh i've built that camera and i did this and that well it's, it's, it's like, less about the tech though but it's more about like so you're someone who's who comes from celluloid you're used to shooting on film uh -huh. and now you're shooting on a on a digital format and you're doing it in a way that's not quite it's not exactly found footagey but it is kind of like a found footage film you know we like. just watch a lot of like police videos and watch like for example how people cover these days war like in afghanistan they're wearing like gopros on their helmets yeah so then you just like f realizing that it doesn't matter because I think here that's the interesting thing about cinematography in general. That cinematography is not really a beautiful pictures. I mean, you you I mean, like great DPs has their own style, and yeah. you gotta fight for your image. You gotta fight for 
your right to be the artist and use time and money the way you think it should be. But at the end of the day, if if the way that movie only look beautiful, you will never see a movie like Celebration or yeah. a movie like Idiots or movie like Breaking the Waves. Yeah. Because it's completely anti cinematography movies, but it's an amazing movies. Yeah, yeah. So so that's why I, I I always very open to like, okay, that's chance like in a suicide squad, use big lamps, great cranes and craft shots. That's that's this kind of movie. Let's do it. Yeah. And this opportunity to use uh, small cameras, camcorders, Velcro cameras. Let's use it because that's fun. And this opportunity to use uh, absolutely natural light and a few bounce board the whole movie and use anamorphic lenses. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. It didn't. It doesn't look like a an especially lit movie. Like it looks like it's not supposed to look lit. No, it's like because for me the cinematography shows a respect. And I think the more I'm doing that, that that kind of my, my, my taste is changing and I started enjoying DPs. I never really looked in the past, you know, mm-hmm. caref- like that carefully, study that carefully. Like, and, like who, for instance? Well, like, you know, I think, for example, everyone realized that like guy like Harry Savitas actually created the whole visual look of like to, from 2010 to, to this hazy blacks and mm-hmm. underexposed look, which we saw in the movies, uh, like Bradford Young using Ain't Nobody Saints. It's it's a it's a Harry Civitas sort of a you know style and it's he's never been awarded or never been but he <laughs> actually had a huge influence even with his music videos with Mark Romanek or Fincher oh yeah on entire visual sort of a visual world we're even living in right now because I I have not seen too many better music videos since those guys did you know oh what my man? God. and it's been like 1995 those music videos are the best like the I, best yeah so that's what I'm saying and you know you start like oh wow that guy is like that's the genius you know yeah. and and sort of you know but for me oh, guys like Vittorio Storaro like those guys they always been just a like for example I have not seen the Woody Allen movie yet uh, which Storaro shot Cafe uh, Cafe Society. Yeah, I have not seen, but I I saw trailer and I saw that Storaro lighting, which I love from like, you know, beneath the shelter, the the sheltering sky and uh, mm-hmm. Last Emperor. That's just like mind blowing, you know. And it's, you know, it's hard. It's it's. I think, I think for me, cinematography. It's 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 a fun. It's just like to find that that specific look for the movie that's why i really enjoy actually that all my movies i've done they look very 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 different and, yeah and i think that's actually thing i like to do the most because i think it's it's fun to be different every time but at the same time <laughs> you watch on a guy like roger dickens who is just like so consistently amazing with any kind of a director he's working with and any kind of a script and any kind of material that is kind of just a mind-blowing but but he is a total sort of a like a samurai. He's so dedicated <laughs> to what he does. Yeah. He shot over eighty movies, and yeah. he shot three movies per year. It means he has no life. He has like seriously just travel from one movie to another. And you know, if you shoot three movies a yeah. year, that's how it is. You know, and it's such a dedication to 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 the job and profession. It's just amazing. That's why he's a genius, and he's who he is. I personally maybe a little bit more of a. I like to try different things and 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 be sort of a more of um I don't know as I said I, I, if I had relationship with like certain directors who I'm enjoying to work I probably should just even less movies than I do because I felt I I I I personally cannot shoot like you know like five projects or three projects a year for me it's yeah. physically 
and emotionally quite tricky, you know, because I always try to find like a new look and then I get not. Yeah, it sounds like you that. put a, a great deal of thought into, you know, all of your work. And Yeah, I think it's just the way I am, you know. Yeah. And, 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 but I don't think it's something like, you know, amazing or something. I think everyone, everyone's very different and it's great, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I sort of get the sense that you're David Ayer's guy. Like you, you work with David Ayer's. You, you've done I, I all think, three of his. Features. I think it's not like I think I think we have just friendship and yeah. relationship, and you know, like for example, you know, we've done like Suicide Squad, and critics didn't like it, and right now he's doing a different movie, and and for me. You know, I have to be with him when it's good times and when it's bad times. And of course. And when we feel that our relationship is not really bringing a fun anymore, then it's time to move on. Yeah. But right now, I know his even next movie, he pitched me like, not pitch like, but we talk about his next script. And yeah. it's an amazing story, I think, because he was thinking about it over several years. This is just an insane script again. And it's like, David, like, yeah. that's like, why are we not doing it right now? <laughs> it's like, because I just figured it out. And so it's yeah. like, so I think it's fun. And, um, well, and critics can hate on Suicide Squad all day long. It's probably gonna be the highest grossing movie of the year or one of them. It is, but for me, it's like one of those painful conversation because, you know, like I felt we did an amazing work and it's just like sometimes, you know, it's hard to put to put a great movie together. It's difficult, especially with so many characters. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think we did as best as we can. I wish we could do even better, but, mm -hmm. but you know, it's one of those things where you kind of like, you know, watching the movie, you, you learn and you keep going. And I think, you know, well, that's, it, I mean, it, I, I want to talk about Fury as well. Yeah. But before we even do that, since you brought up Suicide Squad, mm -hmm. I don't pretend to know what it was like doing the stuff that you were doing in Russia, but I, I would assume that you had a, a lot of control over what was going on. Yeah. And then something like End of Watch, which was a lower, lower budget studio film, mm -hmm. you know, with big stars in it, but still, you know, now you're doing Suicide Squad which Warner Brothers is really betting the farm on making these DC movies work really well. Mm. So, and I don't know how much of this you can answer, mm. but how how much is the corporate influence getting into what you're doing? Well, I mean, one of their advantages when you work with your friend director that's actually you get quite protected from by director, at least like I want to say about David, that I always feel very sort of secure with him because uh, he trusts me and I know, and he knows that I work my... You know, uh, I will work very, very hard, and 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 I will deliver the best I can. Uh, on a, I cannot say that it was very complicated because I've done you know like a musical in Russia and and I've done pretty big commercials. So scale is not something really which is difficult because reality is you just approach it with a very simple system. You yeah. you you still it can be huge system. It can be lots of lights tremendous amount of lights but but the idea is like that they do very simple things yeah like either a key light or back light or front light or top light or whatever you think but is. like are, are there like executives who are sitting in video village looking at every shot you know what i'll be honest with you i i am really enjoying working in america and i think producers here yes they top they're very like you know money orientated and sort of uh they their job protect studio money and deliver but you know i I always get along very well with them, and I think they're very hardworking, beautiful people who, who, who at the end of the day, also want to make a great movie. At least maybe yeah, I course. just was lucky, but like on Suicide Squad, we got uh, Charles Rowe and Richard Sackle and Colin Wilson, who've done like Avatar and stuff. And yeah. those people, they, they, they don't sleep. They work like yeah. 24 hours, and they... 
and they really want to help and you just have to understand that you're also responsible for certain things and yeah. if you understand that then then you just put your creativity in the right way and you actually get paid to be creative yeah and and uh but it also that's, you, that's the dream yeah and also you get paid to drive the bus as smooth as possible to the end as a dp you know yeah, with yeah. so many big huge film stars but reality is if you understand that and you find your own thing you want to explore and that's actually usually a fine trip so physically it was very sort of a tricky of course because it was you know huge days huge setups big like helicopters and all that stuff but but at the end of the day you know it was a lot of fun as well because cast was an amazing we had a lot of support from them and um you know it was fun and studio you know they they care and they comment about things but if you think that you believe in the things it's like it has to be i think in my opinion the conflict has to be like about such a black and white things that's mm-hmm. that's i think it's either comes later in post but at <laughs> least on the shoot like i never really experienced that much of a trouble and and i, I always take in the movie that's why i'm trying to shoot commercials as much as i can because i always want to try to keep in my mind the thing is like okay guys this is what i do and this is what I think is right, and if you think it's wrong, there is a hundred fifty DPs who will die to get this job, yeah. and, and I'm happy to step out because, like, I'm not gonna have fun to making it, and you're not gonna have fun to work with me if I'm not excited about it. So that's why I try to keep myself financially as independent as only possible, and not like be have a kind of like simple life in a way, so I can make those choices and I can feel free because. I think that's a, that's a tricky part when you start shoot movies just for making money yeah. as a cinematographer because then you kind of get get stuck into other things and 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 that's actually hard because then you you're not really honest with yourself till the very end and I think that's where trouble starts and if you're very honest everybody feels that and even film stars feels feels that that you're passionate about it and yeah, yeah. and you get the whole support you know that's cool but, but like when you're working on a movie like that, like I, I guess, I don't know. I have, I have so many questions. I feel like I could do a whole thing just about working, not just not on Suicide Squad in particular, but just a movie of that size with that many big stars in mm-hmm. it and just the way that you have to move around. Like how long of a shoot was it? Well, you, you just plan. It's like we shot over 86 days, which is not really much for the size of the movie. Yeah. We have a, it's a second, huge movie. Se- second unit around like 30 days. But again, like I got an amazing team, a uh, great guy from, guy from Rick Thomas. We shot three movies together already and like we know each other. And I love to work with the same people over and over again. We have pretty good Canadian crew, you know. And they also have uh, Josh, second unit DP, and Guy Norris, first union uh, second unit director who actually have done fury road mad max so you know like when you work with this level of professionals that's yeah. like amazing you know like and especially you know you have to understand for me like i'm coming from russia whereas like you know the film business and the film industry is not as advanced as in the united states so for me it's like literally i was like <laughs> playing with them like uh, ball made of stone and I suddenly get a real basketball you know like, uh, so for me that's like that's perfect like you're learning on a very bad car yeah. which is barely driving and then you jump in the industry everything just works like a Swiss clock so I, th- I guess one of the things I always wonder about is like I remember reading an interview with Bill Pope about one of the Spider-Man movies that he'd mm-hmm. done and he was saying that there were so many units going simultaneously that a lot of his job became kind of just quality control yeah. and touching base with the units it's management and it, yeah it was management and it was less about like 
him him with a camera on his on his shoulder like making a movie well i think that's why you should be careful and not make too many movies like that there's nothing wrong to make this movies especially i think these days like i talk with oliver stapleton in camera image and um it was very funny actually it was about to start suicide squad and i told him like what do you think should i like what is like he said as director you work with you of course you should do it i said yeah but i don't feel really like that it's kind of the movies I want to do and stuff. He said, no, but... And actually, Dion Bibi told me the same thing. He said, no, you got to make one of those movies once in a while. Not yeah. constantly, but once in a while because it really puts your uh, sort of a management and craft and, and um, you know, sensibility for lighting and the scale on a different level. That makes sense. So, and it really helps you to be better than you are. And, and uh, to be honest with you, I finished Suicide Squad. After that, I had this Jason Hole movie, little drama for DreamWorks, and it was I was operating camera. I didn't have any. Uh, later, we had big camera also running because studio wanted a little more coverage, and they were worried that Jason's a, you know, for first time direct, we need more coverage. But actually, I felt very happy. I felt like, wow, that's amazing. It's just me, camera, and like four electricians. That's yeah, perfect. yeah. So it's great. But but at the same time. You know, sometimes you do a lot of those dramas, uh, independent movies, and then you understand you work hard, but movies is just not not great, you know? And you're basically suffering and you're going through <laughs> this pain, constant pain of not enough this, not enough that, not enough... So you like... That's why I look like... I think that's why everything... I think Matthew Lebedek actually changed everything because he was working Black Swan and he was yeah. doing Iron Man. And people realized like, oh, that's not anymore like a stamp of that he doesn't have taste or something. It's just the way the industry these days right now, because all this 30, 40, 60 million dollars movies, which been back in the 90s and 80s and 70s, great movies like Casino, you need money to make all those movies, you know? Yeah. They're all gone. I know. And they not, not exist anymore. You even have like 15, at the most, 20 million dollars dramas with a great cast. We have 180 Suicide Squad. Yeah. And nothing in between. Even actors look at Mark Ruffalo, or, you know, all these great actors, dramatic actors. They, they actors, they all in PTA movie, but next year then then Guardians of the Galaxy or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, because that's the way the industry these days right now. So that's why I think um, you know there's nothing bad about it at all. And I think uh, actually I, I heard just recently that Rachel Morrison, who is like an amazing cinematographer, she's doing a Black Panther for Marvel. You know. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, and she just been famous for like sort of a more Indian low budget kind of dramas, which she she done brilliantly. So, and I think that's that's. I feel that's, like that's what's happening with directors too. Is it's like you make you make one independent film people have heard of, and then you're making dress. Yeah, because part. it's tough. You know, life costs money, and like yeah. these guys, they want to develop their own projects. And I think again, like Chris Nolan did that thing when he like, okay, guys, I'm gonna shoot three movies about Batman, and then I'm gonna do Interstellar, my passion project. But yeah. the passion project costs. 150 108 million dollars because reality is these days if you don't make for studio a billion dollars you can't make any you know what i mean uh, it's like it's the way the world is right now. i hope so. that changes i always think about like when uh darren aronofsky's first film you know many mm -hmm. libatik's first yeah. film pie i don't know actually i don't know if that's many libatik's first film i have but anyway when that came out that was considered a, an art house success you know how much money it made theatrically like three million dollars mm -hmm. but they bought it for one million dollars so that was like they tripled their their investment well, i think it still exists and you know the sun does but uh, what i'm saying is i think why directors even great directors do that be, it's really hard to be long in that system where yeah. you have to constantly ask for money have to ask uh, constantly go with your script and beg for money that's for, for Justin Curso he's an amazing director an amazing yeah. director he just did this big movie with Fassbinder Assassin's Creed 
and it's a reason because that movie gonna make a lot of money and you know and uh after that he'll be able to do what he wanted to do you that's know, small cool. movie and i think that's actually fair enough you know so i think that's that's our day's reality and we gotta accept it and and you know don't, don't put stamps on people <laughs> you know what i mean that's the, that's the thing Let's talk a bit about Fury, which is another David Ayer film, and then I'd love to talk about your yeah. other films. So David Ayer makes uh, makes End of Watch, and his next thing is Fury. Now, mm-hmm. uh, it's a such a different movie. Yeah. Uh, frankly, it's such a different. Like if I look at those three as a trilogy of the you know your collaborations with yeah. him, they're all so different. Yeah. It would be even hard for me to realize that they were the same per- people yeah. making them. Well, I think because he also kind of likes to explore different things, and I think. Like this movie we're doing right now in prep, it calls Bright, and uh, it's in LA and a sort of a LAPD story again, but it's not actually a LAPD story. It's like a crazy, crazy script. But it, <laughs> but I think, I don't know really. I think I think he just writes sometimes. He just like, he just like, he just sit down and write a script. You know what just I mean? Inspired, about, about, yeah, just inspired. Yeah, because he likes. He's definitely likes uh, all the. Mi- he's a big fan of uh, military, and yeah. he's a big fan of like uh, sort of all this culture, and uh, he collects some things, and um, it's who he is. And for me, you know, he. It's great that he can write stories about it. So, and the Fury was an amazing movie because we had, the budget was like fifty, sixty something, sixty million, and um, which is you know, for period movie we shot in London. I was very lucky that he basically called me and said, hey, you want to do it? For me, it was like, wow, it's a Brad Pitt movie. You know what I mean? It was like <laughs> completely mind-blowing. But but at the same time, it was so much fun and the movie turned out great. And, um, yeah. you know, it's it's really, I don't know. I feel like the funny thing is like you can handle any scale and any sort of a technical task if you feel like you and your director together. Mm-hmm. And that's what this, like The Revenant, it's completely understandable how it's all happened because there's such a chemistry between director and DP and that's like a, it's like a, it's a heart beating heart. Yeah. Which is moving the whole vehicle into this madness. And everybody's like, oh my God, oh my God. And then they're like landing or like Birdman, you know, like, yeah something completely crazy you know or like what Matthew Lebedek does like Black Swan like I heard that people just when we're studios were reading that script and they're like oh my what is this like well, how this I'm gonna oh, make man. money and it made like 700 million dollars that's Aronofsky's <laughs> best film in yeah, my opinion I think so far. too I think so too and that's 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 amazing and I think that's that's what it's all about about the script and the chemistry between you and your director and you just go for it and it's usually turns out very well Cool. Uh, so let's talk about just really quickly, let's wrap up and talk about some of the other things that mm-hmm. you have going on. So you were talking about the Doug Liman movie. Mm-hmm. So Doug Liman, again, like, you know, like s- serious name director who really puts a specific stamp on his work. Like mm-hmm. his, his work has a real stamp. What was collaborating with him like for you, if you're allowed to talk? Well, for me, it was, I, I, uh, it's absolutely. weird. I, f- I feel like I'm not supposed to say anything because the movie hasn't come out yet. But No, like, no. But, you know, it's like I'm not going to tell what's the movie about. <laughs> I'm just going to tell how was the relationship with the brilliant director, Doug Lyman. It was absolutely amazing because I felt Doug, he's one of those guys who is like hiring a person to be creative and mm-hmm. listen to him. For him, that's the most important part. So he hiring you. And he said, okay, I pick you for some reason, like whatever reason he had. And and I think you're talented. And what I want to see from you, it's your heart and your soul into the project. And, and I want you to see, be passionate about it. And as soon as he sees that you are passionate about it and you really care and you propose things and you try to be as involved as possible with every little detail and you don't sleep about it and you wake up <laughs> and it's like, I got this idea about this shot, then he's happy. And that's what I 
that's why I enjoyed work with him because I felt like after a couple of days when we kind of get more shorthanded, I felt like we get something. I start really feeling what he wants. And for me, that's it's a great, like fun working with a director when I understand that we kind of connected with some invisible pipe or something yeah. where I can really read his mind about ideas and thoughts. And great thing about Doc, like was every good director, sometimes, okay, I know what he wants. I wanted this shot, this shot. And then later like, no, it's not what I want. You're like, oh, what do you want? And then he says something. He's like, shit, that's much more smarter than what I thought. <laughs> so that's 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 the thing. And then you're saying why he's a director. But that goes both ways too. Don't you like bring ideas to the table that he's like, oh, wow. Like every DP. I, I, I don't think so because I think my ideas, they're always visual. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think uh, that's great. That's my job. But, but, but at the same time, I think actually the difference between great directors and not great directors and uh, not let's say great directors and good directors let's not say no one <laughs> great, i mean that's actually great directors they have this talent of like just like boom like put one, one thing one idea one thought and you realize that you will never if you will sit the whole nights by yourself <laughs> with a drink you will never even come up with an idea like that but right? i think that it works the other way too with dps i've seen it a million times where the director gives the dp a very specific idea of a shot or something like that they go away the, the dp is working with the body doubles or the stand in, stand-ins or whatever and then the director comes back and the dp has made the exact shot but it's completely cooler and different than what the director had imagined right. you know or or they've figured out a way to be like oh, okay well you've got this shot and that shot but if you put the camera here you can get them both and it's a more dynamic composition or well, whatever that's why we how we work with dave we always like okay I, you know he we, we i bring him up with some shot idea and he's like you know like it but i and but I, I feel like that's the way it should be. Yeah. In a way, you know, and it's a collaboration. I, collaboration, but but at the same time, I think that's for me the the fun part as a DP, and I think like yeah. as actors as well, they like to feel, and I myself like to feel that in certain ways, like I still get not like control, but I still get like I still feel that there's a mastermind. Yeah. You know what I mean to set up the tone because. You know, it's like an orchestra. You still have to get a conductor. Of to, course. To, and I think that's 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 why, you know, I, I loved about working with Doug that I did feel that mm-hmm. even if he feels like he's not really like sort of uh, saying anything or he's not like, okay, do this or that. He's like leaving a question mark about something. Uh-huh. But as soon as he feels that something goes definitely wrong, not necessarily right, but definitely wrong, he's definitely in it to say, no, 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 that's like the other way. And that's for me, that's actually what I need. I don't need more than that because then yeah. I can help and figure out and, and get some proposals, you know. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming out and, and talking to us. Yeah, I hope like, yeah, yeah, I hope it will work. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. No, this, yeah. your perspective is fascinating and I, and, and I, I love the clarity that you have on the collaborative process on how you like to work with directors. And also I, I have to think that that school that you went to, like it gave you a depth of, of uh, knowledge. That's, that's pretty inspirational. I think. Yeah. It's a, yeah, probably, I don't know. <laughs> so maybe we'll get more people to apply to that school. All right. Well, thank well, you. They don't, they only teach in Russian. So that's, oh. <laughs> that's a tricky part. <laughs> well, you know, just like have Google translate on all day. No, I think actually lots, uh, lots of film school in Poland. That's kind of like a cool place also to check it out. I think if people want to learn cinematography in particular, mm-hmm. I think that the, 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 the Polish. Why is it that the Polish have such like the best cinematography? Seriously. Well, I personally think that, that they took a lot from Soviet Union. I'll be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because I'm Russian. I think the the whole Eastern European kind of thing, like Hungary and Poland, and I, I I'm sure that if it wouldn't be Metal Curtain, 
uh-huh. like a lot of great DPs would be in Hollywood. Uh-huh. It just the reality is like they never really get a chance even it's, to be yeah. like they've been completely hidden, you know. So it's weird but, how history intervenes. Yeah, like Sergei Urusevsky who shot Creels of Flying or Soy Cuba. I mean, like if you ask Inurito or Chivo, they definitely say the Soy Cuba is in the masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's an example. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming out. You're welcome. All right, so that was Roman Vasyanov as edited by Mike Wilbanks. Thank you, Mike. This is, this is I, I hope, the beginning of uh, a long, beautiful relationship. All right, so Ben, who is the war story by this week? Uh, the war story is, like, I think one of my favorite guests that we've gotten on here. You ready? Everybody ready? Drum roll. <laughs> Future me, put a drum roll in here as a sound effect. Okay, there we go. I like that drum roll. That sounds, oh, that's a good drum roll. Oh, that's good. Uh... Rodney Charters. That's right. Rodney Charters. The Rodney Charters. Holy crap. Rodney Charters is on our show. ASC Lifetime a lifetime Achievement Award winner. Yeah. Rodney Charters who, you know, you and I bonded and met basically in some ways because of Rodney Charters. You know, uh, I would come over to your house on Monday nights to watch 24. Yeah. And 24, I think, changed television. And I don't think he gets his due. I think almost every show on television today is kind of a ripoff of 24. Yeah, a, a lot of shows really are. They, they 24 was incredibly innovative when it came to look and storytelling and simultaneous uh, cross-cutting back and forth between, you know, complex storylines and, and yeah. you know, characters. It, it's, you know, it was revolutionary. And I don't want to ruin it, but the interview with Rodney Charters is bananas. <laughs> that guy... I could just sit there and listen to him all day long. He's he's so brilliant and so and has he has crazy stories uh, just from his childhood and stuff that don't even have to do with cinematography. And you're like, but somehow this informs this guy. This give, he there's like a visceralness to the work that he does that's just like so many steps beyond anything. It's fascinating. I, it, it's totally fascinating. We have to have him on again. Yeah, I mean, he's got to do a part two. Yeah, we, we had him for like a limited amount of time and, and we had to cut it off short. And I was like, God damn it. I want to talk to you for the next six years. <laughs> so uh, so that's that's our, our, our worst. We, we should just start a yeah. regular feature on the podcast called Storytime with Rodney Charters, where he just tells <laughs> like a story from his childhood and we play like creepy calliope music in the background. <laughs> I think it, I think there's money in that. Uh, you know, I'd listen. I really would. I, w- I would absolutely listen to that. And now, war stories. I once I was crossing Russia in '68 on a train. And there was a kluch lady who was in charge of the peat moss burner that kept the carriage hot. She said, whatever you do, lock your compartment. They would stop at a station in the middle of the night and people would get on. And I forgot one night and these two guys came into my carriage and I kid you not, they had never washed in their lives. And as they began to peel off layers of clothing because they were standing in the snow outside in the s- waiting for the train, I just almost vomited. went out and I said to her what you know I was like gesturing and so on and eventually she took pity on me and she threw them out it was this loud thing that she threw them out but this is the stuff that sometimes happens in life my 
my experience in Siberia gave me an understanding of how painfully powerful uh, personal hygiene can be. Fundamentally, you're the, you're the king on the stage. Uh, there is a director, but often the director's off doing other things, and you're the one person on set that everybody looks to for direction. And so how you behave yourself on set and how well you encourage support as a team leader is a fundamental part of being a cinematographer. You can't employ people and not expect them to be excited to be there, want to contribute, and feel proud of being part of that family. So you need to elicit that kind of level of understanding. Apropos of this, I once had an issue where somebody on my immediate camera team was not washing as often as they should have. I won't name names, I won't name cities. And the rest of the team came to me and said, look, we cannot work with this person on the camera truck. It's even bad on the set. You have to say something. Cinematographers, have, have, once you give up operating, you move away from the immediate team to a certain extent. So I wasn't personally as offended by this person, but I had had moments, little whiffs, and uh, it, they came to me. They, a first AC came to me and said, look, Rodney, you, you have to say something. We believe we can't say anything and still continue to work with her. It has to come from a higher level. I actually went to the camera and stood there for a little bit and said, okay, <laughs> I have to deal with this. Because <laughs> I was removed at the monitors. I wasn't quite... Um, and so I had to grip my teeth and you know, pluck my courage up. And I actually bought in a little care package of soap and shampoo. And, and I handed it to this person and said, look, please, for the, for the sake of my team, of all of us, please take a little time in the morning and perform ablutions before you come in. It was partly a cultural thing. We're not from the same country. And so uh, I understood that. This particular individual made an effort and gradually it improved and, and we thanked this person and they continued to work in the industry and went on to better and greater things. And now, short ends. All right, so that was Rodney Charter's amazing war story. It, it certainly was. And Ben, we've reached that time. That time, once again, our, maybe, you know, I don't know if it's your favorite time, but it's certainly that time where we get to blab about whatever our obsession of the week is, is our short ends section. So, mm -hmm. so Ben, uh, I've got a short end this week about a television show. Well, I'd call it a TV show, but it really it's on Amazon. It's a, a series, and you can watch the entire season, and it's called Patriot, and Patriot is fantastic it's a great series i would say that it harkens in some ways to the sort of unsettling feelings that you get from like watching a uh, mr robot it's hmm. not a mr robot it's not trying to be that sort of show uh, it's essentially a spy thriller about a spy who's actually not a great spy he's okay but he's, he's not great it's got some people in it you'll recognize like kurtwood smith the gentleman who played john locke on lost oh yeah so uh terry o'quinn right terry o'quinn 
And yeah. the lead is actually a Kiwi, but I'd never seen him in anything before. A New Zealander or an actual Kiwi? It is a New Zealander. That, see, it, that would be groundbreaking <laughs> television if they had like an actual like green Kiwi you fruit. Knew, you knew what I was talking about. His name is uh, Michael Dorman. So, uh, mm-hmm. and then actually Michael Chernus is also in it. So you might recognize him. He's been in some, some other stuff, but anyway, Patriot looks to be shot anamorphic 16 by nine. I'm not sure what lenses they use, but it's a really, really cool. Okay, look. Wait, run, run, anamorphic. So how do you, what? Okay. So typically anamorphic lenses are used for that extreme widescreen field of view. Uh-huh. Not this time. It looks like anamorphic lenses, and I'm piecing it together from some of the telltale signs of anamorphic lenses, but uh, they're cropping the edges. So that means while they're framing, they're framing the whole thing for 16 by 9, but they're getting all the benefits of the 240. It is a possibility that they're using the Hawk 1.3 squeeze lenses, which do give you you know a 240 image and a 16 by 9 sensor. I don't know which method they're using, but regardless, they are reframing it for sixteen nine, I know I just lost like all of our audience here, but basically, no, if, I'm if, nerdy enough to kind of follow that. It fu- it fills the screen. You don't have you know letterboxing on your sixteen by nine HDTV. Yeah, yeah. It's a very very cool. But look. you're you're seeing that anamorphic, bloomy, out of focus kind of elliptical uh, bokeh, right? Exactly, and you're also seeing uh, a little bit more you know noise slash grain structure because now you're using a smaller section of the imaging sensor. You're blowing it up essentially a little bit. Do you know what camera they shoot it on? Actually, I don't. I don't know what it is, but it's a great look. But beyond the look, it's a wonderful show. I think you'd really enjoy the show. It's and who's my, the DP? I, the DP is Jim Whitaker, who shot almost all of the episodes. And it actually looks like another Whitaker. I'm going to guess uh, maybe his wife. I'm not sure. Looks like uh, shot two episodes as well. So that's kind of cool. Could be his wife. Could be a sister. Could be a weird coincidence. It just happens to be that. Uh... <laughs> Whit- Whitaker's. If you are listening to us now, call us up and we'll put you on the show. Yeah. Jim Whitaker and Nicole Hirsch Whitaker. So I don't know. They, they work together. Awesome. Neat. And they're both DPs. Then they are. They're both DPs. So Ben, what is your short end this week? My short end is Shout Factory, which is a company that goes back and remasters older movies. Eh, some of them are, some of them are pretty old. And I recently picked up two movies like, a lot of times I'll see a movie on Blu-ray. I don't, I don't buy Blu-rays like I bought DVDs. I think most people, it's the same thing. Like, you know, like I would buy a DVD because it's like, oh, cool, Turner and Hooch. Whenever I need Turner and Hooch, I, you know, I know it's nearby. Uh, and now it's like... when it, with, <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> with, you, you, of all the movies you could have gone to, you could have gone to like the 1980s soundtrack movie of, you know, of, of like... Uh, the, the the 1980s Queen soundtrack of like Flash Gordon, but you went to Turner and Hooch. I did, I did, uh, because I I think that that's a landmark film. What's wrong with Turner and Hooch? Anyway, uh, anyway um, I, I just you know, of all the movies you could have pulled, you could have pulled out, you could have pulled out Close Encounters, you could have pulled that's, out. That's true. That's true. Well, I was trying intention- raising Arizona. I was trying intentionally to pull out a movie that like maybe you liked, but wasn't like a must own kind of a thing. But I recently picked up two movies that Shout Factory actually their horror sub imprint. I don't know what you would call it, which is called Scream Factory. They re-released, uh, they re-released lots of movies. Two of the ones I picked up were John Carpenter's The Thing Ooh. and David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Mm. So The Thing, which is shot by Dean Cundey, who, as you just told me, won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the ASC. So what's cool about Shout Factory is they go back to the original elements, and when possible, they bring in the original DP or director or somebody, rescan the stuff at at least 2K, 
for an HD release. And so watching The Thing, which is a movie that I have probably seen hundreds of times in my life, it was like seeing it for the first time. It, wow. it was beautiful. And Dead Ringers, which was shot by Peter Shusitsky, uh, who shoots a lot of uh, Cronenberg's movies, also shot like The Empire Strikes Back. That movie, rewatching it, I didn't realize what a huge influence Dead Ringers had been on me in my early film school days, in my adolescence, in thinking about what made film compelling. And the movie holds up brilliantly. But I think that uh, everybody should check out Shout Factory if you have a Blu-ray player. Their only real competitor in how much they love movies would be like Criterion. Mm. Wow, that that's impressive. Yeah, as a, as a genre fan, you're going to find all kinds of stuff. Like Stuart Gordon gave me a Shout Factory Blu-ray of uh, Robot Jocks, which is you know a super fun, uh, wacky, giant robots fighting movie that he made in the uh, early 90s. And it's like, you know, who else is going to release something like that? Hopefully it finds a new audience and the films just look as amazing as you can pot as they look as amazing as they're ever going to look on home video. Robot jocks, robot jocks. That's, uh, that, that's like a seminal work of giant fighting robots, which like how many, wasn't there that Hugh Jackman movie where they did the fighting robots and then. Pacific Rim. And, okay, 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 so the Hugh Jackman one, which is called Real Steel, is normal sized, like human sized <laughs> oh, okay. fighting robots. Sorry, I'm, I'm not. I'm not the connoisseur. And of then the fighting P- robots. Pacific Rim is giant robots. Is is again giant robots. And in fact, I don't want to get into much ephemera here, but uh, somebody's made a YouTube video where they do side by side robot jocks and Pacific Rim. And by the time the video is over, you'll be like, "Wow, Pacific Rim was." Uh, let's just diplomatically say extremely influenced mm-hmm. by robot jocks. Wow. Okay. Gotcha. So I, I, fantastic. Don't hate on the robot. Jocks. I'm not hating on the robot jocks or, <laughs> or, or on Stuart Gordon. The guy's I, the guy's look, my hero. I, I didn't say anything derogatory about Stuart or robot jocks. Okay. I was just like, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sub genre unto itself. Now it is the fighting it, look, robots. Robot jocks is pretty awesome. And I bet most people, if I put them in front of robot jocks, they would watch it and they would very much enjoy it. Ben, I think that is about all the time we have this, uh, we have this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that on that note of giant fighting robots. Giant fighting robots. So firstly, we want to th- again thank Mike Wilbanks for coming on board as our editor and we'd like to plug his website which is lumospictures.com. So go to lumospictures.com, give Mike Wilbanks some love. Tell him that you appreciate his help in getting the Cinematography Podcast going. And then additionally, we would, as always, like to thank Kays Alatracci. You can find his music at www.musicbykays.com. Hire Kays to do your next thing. Or, frankly, uh, one thing that most people don't know about Kays because he's a well-known composer. He's actually pretty good with visual effects. Yeah, that's true. He's pretty darn good. He's a talented, talented fella. Multi-talented guy. So, Ilya, where can people find you? They can find me at Hot Rod Cameras. You can also find me at uh, camnoir.com, which is the home of the Cinematography Podcast, and on all various forms of social media. There's not too many Ilya Friedmans out there, so I'm pretty easily searchable. Weirdly, there's a few Ben Rocks out there, and one day I want to have a convention or something. (laughs) So the four of you will get together. Something uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah, it won't really be a convention. It'll just be like four of us at Denny's. (laughs) <laughs> trying to confuse somebody with our, when we give them our credit cards. Oh, we'd like to split this bill four ways, please. So you can find me at Neptune Salad on Twitter at Benjamin underscore rock on Instagram and at BenRockOnline.com. You can learn everything you needed to know about me, which really probably isn't that much, but uh, knock yourself silly. I think this concludes our broadcast day. 
All right. Thank you. And we will see you back here for episode 14 of the Cinematography Podcast featuring Rodney Charters. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.